All right, let me read you a little scripture here tonight. Let's, uh, let's start in verse number 38. Let's go back to verse 38. 1 Kings 18, are we there together? In verse 38, and really I'm going to look at verses, I guess, 41 through 46. That's kind of going to be the text tonight. But let's back up just a little bit so we make sure we remember what's going on here because it has been a couple weeks. Again, seems like it always is that way when we get to Elijah here. But verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell. Does that ring a bell and everybody know where we're at? We all know what's going on. The showdown on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and, and, uh, and Elijah. And he rebuilds that altar. And the deal is the God who answers by fire. That is the true God. And, uh, of course, Baal doesn't answer because he doesn't exist. And they're screaming and hollering for hours and hours and cutting themselves. And no answer from heaven. No voice. One text, one verse that says, there, neither was there any to answer. There was, no, there was nobody there. How many glad you got a God that you can hear? Glad you got a God that's real. I know He's real. He's living in my heart. I know He's real. I thank God for times where He manifests His presence in my life. What a blessing that is. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now look here, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat. And drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount to the top of Carmel. It is Mount Carmel, but it says to the top of Carmel. And he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And it came to pass as the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, go up, say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now here's what I want to preach on, and I, I'll, I'll try to make it make sense, but let me go ahead and give you the title. I want to preach on this thought tonight on what repentance will do. What repentance will do for you in your life. Getting right with God. Turn, that's what repentance is. It's turning to God. And I want to show you the, how I see an element of that. And maybe a surprising place. Maybe a place you haven't noticed it before. You probably have, but maybe you haven't. Maybe I can remind you of it here. And then I want to show you what, what it did. 
uh, here in our text. All right, let's pray. Let's ask God to show us these things from His Word tonight. Father, we love You. We're thankful for Your Word, how it helps us and feeds us. And Lord, thank You for the good singing tonight. Lord, from Lord, the girls' home, we love them. Lord, thank You for Miss Erica and her family. And Lord, that good singing tonight, the good testimony. Lord, all that You've done, Lord, stirring our hearts. Lord, just on what seems like a routine Sunday night. Lord, I'm glad You meet with us. Lord, You're so good to us. Now, Lord, as we open up the bread of life, God, I pray that You would feed Your people. And God, I pray that You would feed them from the Word of God. Help me just to be the, de- be the delivery boy. God, I pray that You'd help me just deliver it, not alter it, not change it, not try to add anything or take away from it. But Lord, just give it. And Lord, I pray that it would help Your people tonight. And Lord, help us, Lord, to understand what real genuine repentance will do in our life. Help us not to run away from it, not to run away from You, but run towards You, God. And Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Well, our text tonight, specifically I'm looking at verses 41 through 46 tonight, really describe to us what took place between the fire and the flood. We are in this period. The fire fell in verse 38. We read that. And then the rain begins to fall in verse number 45. Everything in between are things that took place between the fire and the flood. And I want you to see some repentance. It's really in the prayer that Elijah prays for the people. That was what was on his heart. Elijah, more than anything in the world, he wanted the people of Israel to turn from their idolatry and turn to God. That was in his prayer. Verse 37 makes that clear. He said, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that Thou art the Lord God and that Thou hast turned their heart back again. And that's exactly what happens when that prayer is answered and the fire falls. In verse number 39, the people saw it and they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The fire proved the existence of the one true God. And now they are at a point of decision which Elijah brought them to in verse 21. Remember he said, If Baal is God, follow Him. If, uh, if, if, uh, if Jehovah is God, if God is God, then follow Him. May Make up your mind, quit being halt between two opinions, and the fire fell, and it looks like the people made up their mind, and they realized that there is but one God, and it is not Baal, and it is not Ashtaroth, and it is not the gods of the nations, and and all these other little g-gods, there is one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, Jehovah God. The I am that I am. That is God. And they realize that and they fall on their face and begin to worship God. This is an acknowledgement, if you will. And this acknowledgement really is sealed, just like repentance really is. When you acknowledge God and you turn from their sin, there really is a mortification that takes place. There is, a, there is a, a killing of sin that takes place. And we see that in verse number 40. They were willing to take the prophets of Baal and they were willing to slay them and to kill them, putting to death that old life. This is a great picture of repentance right here. And I think I proved a couple weeks ago, and I'm going to emphasize it for our message tonight, that this really was a prerequisite for the rain. The rain of God was not going to fall until those idols were taken care of. 
Though those prophets, the idolatry, the sin was repented of, they had to do that. They had to get rid of the idolatry. And you understand God is serious about sin. God doesn't, listen, we say, look, we look at that verse, verse 40, and say, man, that's pretty stout right there. God made them kill all those prophets, I think 400 and then 450. God made them take care of all those prophets right there. Yes, God didn't want one of them to live. God wants complete surrender. God wants no, God has a zero tolerance policy when it comes to sin in our life. Now, you and I, we have a 2% policy or a 10% policy. We like to let things slide. We got pet sin that we don't want to deal with. We got little idols that we don't want nobody to touch. And if the preacher says anything about them or if anybody pokes one, we get all mad and we get angry. By the way, if you want to know what your idol is in your life, it's that thing you get most offensive about when somebody points it out. Amen. It's what pokes your heart. And it's like, oh, I don't got a problem with that. Well, usually when you say, oh, I don't got a problem with that, uh, you got a problem with that. Amen. That's right. <laughs> That's your idol right there. I don't got it. Yep, yep, you do right there. You just proved that you did have a problem with that. God wants them all gone. He wants them all to take care of. And the rain, listen to me, the rain was not going to fall until these prophets were slain. They had to be taken care of. It was a part of their repentance toward God, and God is serious about sin, and He wants us to be serious about sin. He does not want any of these idolaters to live, any of these prophets that promote and facilitate idolatry. He did not want any of them to live, and it had to be dealt with before the rain fell. Now, we all quote 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, and that's a good verse to quote. I know it's a promise for Israel, and we better keep it that way. But if you want to keep it in context, you've got to get verse number 13 as well. In fact, I think I put it on there, Brother Mitchell. Throw that up here just real good. Verse number 13. So I can read. If I, here's what, here's what uh, God said. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, here's verse 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's exactly what Israel needed. They need a, they needed, their land needed a physical healing. And God had shut up the heaven that there was no rain. But it took repentance. It took a turning from their wicked ways. That's what repentance is. And turning to God, humbling themselves, turn from their sin, turn from their wicked ways, Prove their repentance and turn to God. God was not going to open up the heaven. He was not going to heal their land and do that. And I know that's a promise to Israel, but there's a spiritual application for us. It's the same in the New Testament. We don't have a physical land and the land, you know, physical rain, all that. But we need the blessings of God on our life. And they're not going to come until we turn from our sin. We've been looking at Romans chapter 8. If you remember way back the beginning of verse of chapter number 8, Romans deals with that, the flesh, living after the flesh or living after the Spirit. And here's what it says in Romans 8. He said, if you live after the flesh, you shall die. If that's the way you want to live, if you want to live in sin and idolatry, you will die. There will be possibly physical death. There will be a separation of blessings of God in your life. It's literally death. Listen, if you say you're saved but you can live in sin and be happy about it, I think you're mistaken. I think you're deceived is what you are. When a Christian lives in sin, there's a death. It's a time to mourn. It's death on the inside. He said, but this, here's what Paul said in Romans 8. He said, but 
if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, he said, ye shall live, put them to death, put that flesh to death, and ye shall live, there will be life. It's amazing what mortifying the flesh will do. By the way, that flesh, that's a part of you that wants to serve other gods. Idolatry, it's amazing what it'll do for you. I think there's a surprising case of repentance. I believe this, and I believe the text preaches this. You may not believe it at first, but maybe if you give me a second, I could could get you on board with me. But I believe there was even a moment of repentance in Ahab's life. And when you realize that, it really the text makes a lot more sense, especially chapter 19. And I'm excited to get to chapter number 19 because it is so, I mean, uh, chapter 19 is so... Uh, relatable. There's a lot of things about Elijah I can't relate to. I can't relate to standing in front of a king and telling him there's not going to be any rain on the earth because you know you're so wicked. I've never done that. I don't know if I would do that. I can't relate to uh, uh, living by a brook and having ravens bring me you know Hardy's biscuits and the and, and I, I can't relate. I can't relate to that. I can't relate to you know raising a boy from the dead. I can't relate to calling fire down from heaven. I can't relate to any of those things. But I can relate to feeling sorry for myself and being depressed <laughs> in chapter 19. I can relate to that just a little bit. It's very relatable. And really it doesn't make sense unless you realize what's going on at the end of chapter 18. You've got to realize that there was a moment, there was a, a semblance at the very least of, of Ahab. Looks like he was going to turn to God. It looks like he was going to... Things change now. When he gets to chapter 19, uh, Ahab finds out he's not allowed to turn to God because his wife said he couldn't. In fact, if that's what happens to a lot of people, I've seen some people, they got a heart and, and, and their heart gets touched and gets pricked and they realize God is God and they realize there are other ways and then they go back to other people and it messes everything up. And that's the way it is Ahab. Now we know Ahab had a heart that could be touched by God because it is at the end of his life. You know Ahab humbles himself before God at the end of his life and is granted a measure of mercy. Now Jezebel never is. She's just a wicked woman that hates God. Her heart's I mean, hard as a stone and she gets eaten by dogs. Isn't that right? Her blood gets licked up by the dogs. All right. But now Ahab, Ahab, on the other hand, has a heart that seemed to have at least a measure of tenderness toward God, even at the end of his life. I think some of it started right here. Because the Bible says in verse number 39, now I don't want to read too much into it, but look what it says. I'm just going to tell you, this is just what the Bible says. It says, and when all the people saw it, saw what? The fire of God fall. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. Now, it says all the people. It says all the people that were up on that mountain. The only distinction I think that's made, that phrase, all the people, I looked it up several times in chapter 18. It does pop up several times. The only distinction that is made, I believe, I believe this would be right. You check check me out on it. You let me know what you think. But it looks like all the people, the only thing that that really is, how that's distinguished in chapter 18 is from the prophets of Baal. Looks like on this mountain you got the prophets of Baal and all the people. It looks like to me even the king, uh, even King Ahab is included in all the people. Ahab himself saw it. I believe he fell on his face. I believe he admitted that God was the true and living God. I believe there was a semblance of repentance in his life. That is why... Elijah, and we're going to get to this in the days to come. That's why Elijah is so discouraged in chapter 19 because he really thought, really thought there was going to be a change 
in the, in the palace. And when there wasn't, he was depressed. I'm going to tell you, nothing will crush you more, especially in ministry, nothing will crush you more by, than disappointment. When you feel like somebody, they know right, they ought to get right with God, they ought to be right with God, or maybe they did get right with God and it doesn't last. I tell you, there's no worse feeling in all the world, and that's when Elijah goes. I know Brother Dean was talking about, you know, Jezebel's going to kill me, so you kill me, God, and all that. And I think there is, there is a little humor in that. There's a little truth in that. But here, here's the, the, the truth is, it wasn't that Elijah was upset that Jezebel was trying to kill him. Elijah was upset that Jezebel didn't get right with God. And he was hoping she would. Because he says it right there. God comes to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous. Zealous. Jealous. You know what that means, jealous? That means when you want something that you think belongs to you. Jealousy, in a spiritual sense, God is a jealous God. That means He desires all to worship Him and all to acknowledge Him. He has ownership over them and He desires them. And Elijah feels that same passion. It comes from God. He wants everybody to worship God. He wants everybody to worship Jehovah God. He wants everybody to be on fire for God. And when that's not happening, he said, well, just kill me. Why even live if people ain't going to get right with God? And that's what's going on in chapter 19. Ahab is included in this all, all the people. And for just a brief moment, I mean, y'all still with me say amen. Just a brief moment. It's not long. It's about, in my Bible, it's about, it's about that long. <laughs> it's about like that. For a brief moment, just a little text, just a few verses, there's a little bit of change in Ahab's life. And I want to show you what I believe repentance did in his life just for the brief moment until he gets verse number 1, chapter 19. When Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, oh, it was, it was, over, by, it was over then. But for a brief moment, let me show you what happened in Ahab's life when he repented. Number one, what repentance will do for you. Number one, it turns fear into feasting. It turns fear into feasting. Do you see that? Look at verse number 41. If you'll see it in this light, it makes verse 41 make sense. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of abundance of rain. Elijah told Ahab, Have you ever wondered about that? I was so curious. I put a question mark next to that. Why? Of all the things Elijah would have told Ahab to do, why did he tell him to go eat a meal? Elijah didn't go eat a meal. Elijah went up on top of Carmel and he put his head between his knees. That's what Elijah did. And we'll talk about that probably next. There's a great message in that. And I'm going to get to that hopefully maybe next Sunday night. But that's what Elijah did. But he told Ahab, go up and eat. Eating is something you do. It's, it's feasting. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a party, if you will. It's something that, that you do when, when you're happy. It's eating and drinking and being merry. It's, 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 a, it's a happy time. It's a festive time. Elijah told Ahab, have. I want you to go and eat and drink. Why? Why? Why that? Because I believe there was some repentance in Ahab's life. Elijah told Ahab, "This is a this is a time to be happy." Now I'm going to be honest. If I was Ahab, I would be scared to death when the fire fell. And I'm going to be honest. If I was Ahab and I found out they're killing the prophets of Baal, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing. I'm going to get my little chariot and I'm headed out. I'm headed back to Jezreelite right now. You know why? Because I mean, natural deduction would tell me, guess what? If they're killing everybody that's responsible for idolatry, uh, I'm the one that I'm the king. I'm held ultimately responsible for all of it. They're gonna they're gonna kill me. Elijah's gonna take that sword and he's gonna hack me up into pieces. If I'm Ahab, I am scared to death. I'd be nervous. 
And when Elijah comes to me in verse number 41, if I'm Ahab and Elijah said unto Ahab, right there I'm thinking, this is it. This is over. Oh my soul. I mean, I'm about to get cut up with this sword. My, my sin has caught up with me. I deserve to die. But Elijah doesn't say, put your head on this chopping block. Elijah doesn't say, stand still. We're going to kill you. Elijah doesn't say, it's judgment time. What does Elijah say? He says, get thee up. Eat. And drink. You know what that is right there? That is the mercy of God. That is the grace of God. And I believe Ahab at least had a moment of repentance where he turned to God. His heart was tendered before God. And guess what it did? It took the fear that should have been in Ahab's heart and probably was in Ahab's heart and he turned it in to feasting. And can I tell you, that's exactly what repentance does. When you are not right with God, there is a fear that consumes your life. There is an anxiety. There is an anxiousness. But I want to tell you what repentance Penance will do. If you'll come to God and you'll get clean and you'll get on your face and you'll confess your sin and you'll turn from your sin and turn to God, He will turn your anxiety into an abundance of feasting and a party for you. That's the kind of God we serve, isn't it? Ahab was ready to die, but instead he got to dine. Amen. Isn't that the kind of God we serve who is a God who is plenteous in mercy, Psalm 85 said, and He is ready to forgive. I love that song. That verse that says that He is ready to forgive. Psalm 86 it is. Everybody that calls on it, that means that's his default position. He's standing there, ready to go, ready to forgive. You see, a lot of people have a view of God that he's a God, you know, up in heaven with a big stick. And if you come to him and if you confess your sin, then he's going to whop you upside the head, you know, and judge you. Let me tell you, just listen, he knows where you live. He can whop you upside the head when he wants to whop you upside the head. I'll tell you what God does when you come to him in repentance. He forgives you. I thought about that in the... In, in the Word of God, there's, I'm going to call them, and, and I can only think of three, but y'all help me. That way, if I ever preach this again, I can, I can put it in here, and I won't give y'all credit for it, but I will put it in my message here. I thought about meals, and you can preach all mess on it, meals of mercy. I thought about when that prodigal son come home. He was ready for the whip, wasn't he? I'm going to get whipped. I'm going to be a servant and all that. But what did the father do? Killed the fatted calf, made him a meal. What is that? That's a meal of mercy. When you come back and you get right and you repent, what does the Father do? He gives you a meal. <laughs> he, his fear, the prodigal's fear was turned into feasting. Isn't that amazing? I thought about old Zacchaeus up in the tree. He's a thief. He's a liar. He's a scoundrel. Nobody likes him. Jesus spots him up in that tree and he says... Zacchaeus, and I don't know if I'm quoting the Bible or the song, so I have no idea right now. Zacchaeus, you come down from there, for I'm going to your house today. I think that's the song, actually. Zacchaeus was just a wee little man. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all want to sing it? All right, let's not do that. He said, come down. Don't you think, I mean, if I'm Zacchaeus, I'm thinking, man, I'm, this is it. Judgment. You get down from that tree. I'm going to whoop your hind in right here. That's what he deserved, wasn't it? Zacchaeus deserved. But what did Jesus say? No, we're going to go eat a meal at your house. You say, what is that? That's a meal of mercy. Thought about that one. Thought about another meal of mercy. Thought about the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3. 
wicked, ungodly. I mean, just all messed up in every kind of way. Jesus is knocking on the door. You open up this door so I can bring my whip in there and just judge all of you. That's not what he says. He said, if anybody will open, what did he say he'll do? He said, I'll come in, I'll what? He said, I'll have a meal with you. I'll sup with you. And you can sup with me. You say, what is that? That's a meal of mercy. That's what God does when there's repentance. When there's a turning from sin and turning to God. Listen, He doesn't chastise you. That's what He does to get you to that place. What does He do? He dines with you. He offers you a meal. And I see that in this text. Don't you see that right here? The call to repentance is not a call to die. The call to repentance is a call to dine. Fellowship with the Lord. His fear was turned into feasting. Secondly, what does repentance do? And what did it do in Ahab's life? Turned his fear into feasting. Number two, it turned a time of famine into a time of fruitfulness. Into a time of fruitfulness. Now I want you to notice, go back to verse number 5 in chapter 18. And I want you to notice the, the world Ahab was living in. He's in a famine, in a drought. And I want you to notice the kind of world they're living in. This is Ahab and his servant Obadiah, verse 5. Go into the land, and all the fountains of water, and in all the brooks, peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive that we lose on all the beasts. They can hardly find food. They can hardly find anything just to save their animals alive. That is the dry, barren land that they are living in, right? Now I want you to hold your place in 1 Kings 18. Just hold it right here. And I want you to go to the book of James real quick. I want to show you a verse in the book of James. You know, James talks talks about this instance in relation to Elijah's prayer life. And in James 5, uh, look at verse 17. James 5, 17, the Bible says this, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. Now look at verse 18. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her what? Fruit. Not only... It's amazing to me. Why, why does James mention that? That's, that's, that's pretty amazing to me why he felt, of course, inspired of the Holy Spirit, but why he put that in there right there. Not only did the earth give rain, but he says the earth gave rain, and then he mentions what the natural byproduct of rain is. What happened? The earth gave forth, gave forth fruit. Reminds us that the rain is what produces the fruit. If we want fruit, we got to have what only God can send down if we're going to get what we need to sustain ourselves. And when Ahab repented, when the people repented, when there was repentance, it turned a time of famine into a time of fruitfulness once again. And I know this is a simple point, but I'm going to make it. I'm going to move on real quick. I'm not going to belabor this, but I'm just here to tell you this, that listen, if we want fruit, if we are tired of the barrenness, if we're tired of the dryness, if we're tired of scarcely being able to find anything to provide for our lives, I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about the 
spiritual wealth that we need in our life, the spiritual abundance that we could have. I'm here to tell you repentance is the answer. Kill the prophets. Get rid of the idols. Turn back to God and watch God bless and watch God bring fruit again. In our life, we need the fruit, we need the rain so we can have fruit. I want to see people saved. I want to see lives changed. I want to see fruit and much fruit and fruit that remains. But Jesus said in John 15, it only comes when you abide in Me. We can't bear fruit without Him. And Sin separates us from God. And when we're separated, we're separated from the life-giving source that provides the fruit. We need Him desperately. Not just rain. We need the rain. But the rain's not just so we can feel good. I like feeling good, don't you? But that rain, they needed rain not just so they could get out in the rain and say, man, look, it's raining. Listen, their animals can't eat rain. You can't eat rain. You need not only the rain, but you need what the rain will produce. It brings forth fruit. And when they were willing to turn back to God, God took their time of a famine and turned it in to fruitfulness. Let me give you one last one and I'm done. What repentance will do, not only will it take a time of famine and turn it into a time of fruitfulness, take fear and turn it into feasting. But thirdly, it takes a foe and turns it into a friend. It turns a foe into a friend. You see, Ahab ruled, and I'm back in 1 Kings 18. Let me show you this and I'm done. Ahab ruled. He reigned in an anti-God fashion. He was against God, and conversely, God was against him. They were on opposite sides. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's that way every time. That's James again, isn't it? Ahab was against the man of God. He hated Elijah. Elijah was enemy number one in the nation of Israel. We find earlier in chapter 18, Obadiah tells Elijah that that Ahab has not left any stone unturned, not any kingdom unsearched. Everybody had to put their right hand in the air and swear that they don't know where Elijah is. He's looked everywhere because Elijah is the most hated man. In fact, when Elijah and Ahab finally do meet, the first thing Ahab says when he looks at Elijah said, That's you. You're the one. You're the problem. You're the one that's been troubling Israel. It's all you. He blames Elijah for it all. Hates Elijah. But what's amazing to me is this, is how this chapter ends. Look at the end of chapter 18. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Elijah is running before Ahab's chariot. Now, it took a supernatural touch of God Obviously, to run at this speed, I don't know how fast chariots go, but I think it's a little faster than most men could run, especially for this distance. Do you know how far it was from Carmel to Jezreel? I actually looked at my little Bible map, and it's got like a little thing, and you could measure it out if you want to. I come up with about 20 miles. Most commentators I read behind said that, about between 17, somebody said 17 miles it's right, right around there. doesn't matter. I can't run for one mile. 
I can't run for, I've tried. I mean, I've been on the treadmill, been doing some cardio and stuff lately. I, I can't run. I can, I can walk a long time, but I can't run very, I can run about two, and, and, and by the way, my, when I say run, <laughs> it's probably not what you're thinking. You think of somebody running, you know, very fast. My running is, is if, you know, it's not very fast. It would be like some people walking. But it's a, it's a very fast walk where I'm moving my hands like this. You know, just because you're doing this, it don't mean you're running. But the Bible says that he ran. To do that, you have to have a supernatural touch of God. That's what I'm trying to get at, all right? I obviously do not have God's touch on my life when I'm on the treadmill. That is very, that's very evident. But he ran. That speed, that distance, that's a touch of God. No doubt about that. But I want you to notice what it says, verse 46. It says that he ran before Ahab. Now let me tell you what this is not. This is not Elijah racing Ahab's chariot trying to get to the gate before Ahab does. It's not what that is. It says that he ran before Ahab. That just simply means he ran in front of Ahab. Elijah ran in front of Ahab's chariot. He stayed close to the front of Ahab's chariot. He was actually in a place of where a servant would be. Now, they would normally be on horses or other chariots as well, but they would tell, almost like if you see the president, if you see him in his motorcade, he's going to have secret service in front of him and behind him. And if he's going slow enough or through a crowd or something like this, they'll be out, they'll be on foot, and they run next to the limousine. They are escort. It's an escort is what it is. Elijah was Ahab's enemy, and then he become Ahab's escort. Elijah was Ahab's and then he become Ahab's forerunner. Elijah became his ally, even though he used to be his adversary. And can I tell you what repentance will do? Repentance will take you from being against God and adversaries with God, and God will be your biggest supporter. God will be a blessing in your life. He will go before you. He will run ahead of you. He will run with you. And listen, I'm tell you what, that's the best life in all the world. Quit going against God and go with God. It's a lot better that way. God will take, you repent and He will not become your foe anymore. Listen, you don't have to live your life kicking against God. Isn't that what God told Saul on the Damascus Road? It's hard for thee to kick against the prayer. Why do you want to, that's, that's the hardest life in all the world. In fact, I think us Christians, we need to stop talking about how hard it is to be a Christian. Is it always easy? No. But I'm going to tell you something. The way of the transgressor is hard. That's the hard life. The worldly, wicked, carnal, sinful, idolatrous life. That's the hard life. That's the dry life. That's the barren life. That's the forsaken life. That's the lonely life. That's the miserable life. But when you turn to God and you give Him your sin and you say, God, I'm done fighting. I'm done running. I'm done trying. I surrender all. I want to tell you what, about 40 acres of heaven will flood your soul and it's the greatest life you'll ever ever live. And I'm glad there's a God that runs in front of me and He runs before me and He's clearing the way and He's going ahead of me. That's the greatest life in all the world. God doesn't have to be your foe. He can be the dearest friend you ever had. You don't have to fight against Him all your life. Let Him run with you. You run with Him. Let Him run with you. You'll be glad you did one day. 
And when Ahab was willing to turn, Elijah said, I'll be the best friend you got. It's amazing when Ahab hated God, he also hated God's man. He hated God's people. Amen. I'm going to tell you something. You get right with God, God's man will be the best friend you ever got. God's people will be the best friends you ever had. Amen. Amen. It's amazing. And I'm nothing. I, I, I understand. Listen, it's not personal. People turn on me or whatever, don't like me anymore or whatever. I understand. It's hard, it's hard for me to differentiate sometimes, but, 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 it, but it's not personal. It has nothing to do necessarily with me or anything like that. It's just when people get mad at God, when they want to go against God, when they want to live in sin, they have to vilify somebody, and it's the man that stands in the pulpit and preaches against sin. Amen. And that's just, part, that's just part of it, you know. It's amazing when you get right with God, how your adversary can become your greatest ally. Listen, you can go on your own if you want, but I, I want God running in front of me. I want, I want to be traveling with Him. And that's what, a, that's what Elijah was doing. He was running. I believe Elijah really thought, I believe in his heart of hearts, he really thought, man, revival's about to break out in Israel. Here he is running with the touch of God on his life. He's excited. And that's why when he got to the gates and he heard how Jezebel responded to all of it, it literally sucked all the wind, all the air out of him. And that's where you got chapter 19. We'll deal with that. He was totally deflated. I'm going to tell you something. Holding on to idols and holding on to... Listen, it's not worth fellowship with God. That is the sweetest life. That's the greatest life. It's not worth the fruit. I'm telling you, idolatry is really just not worth it. Kill those prophets. Mortify that flesh. Kill that flesh. Live in fellowship with God. It's the greatest life you'll ever live. You come to Him, i tell you what He'll do. He'll throw you a party is what He'll do. That's what He does. Go up, eat, and drink. This is great. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. He'll throw you a party. You get to have some fruit in your life, and then you get the greatest friend. That you could ever have. Miss Maddie, I want you to come with the piano. Brother Dave, why don't you come up here too and get us a song because we'll get ready to baptize. So why don't you just maybe just, how about a little I Surrender All? That'll be good. Why don't y'all sing a couple verses of that? I know these girls are going to get ready to, they're going to get ready to get baptized. Why don't we stand together all over the building? I'm going to tell you what, those idols could never do for you what the Lord can. I wonder, now listen to me, listen real close. I really, really wonder what some good old-fashioned... I know this kind of preaching is not the most popular preaching in all the world, but listen, it's what we need. What would good... I'm talking about old-fashioned, sin-killing revival, repentance. I wonder what that would do in your life. I wonder what that would do for your home. I wonder what that would do for our church. I'm talking about sin-killing repentance. Repentance.